Hello, welcome to Storytellers of STEM. My name is Rachel Villani. Today's storyteller for episode number 24 is Jenna Larkin. She's a data coordinator for the Nevada Department of Wildlife. She's a GIS guru, in my opinion. She's done all kinds of wildlife field work, and she loves maps, which I thought was cool because I also love maps. So this is a story about how she ended up in the whole geography world. Um, she took a bit of a meandering path, and it's maybe not the typical path that people take to get into wildlife work, uh, which is interesting as an example of all the different ways you can get into the different fields. Um, I had a great time talking to Jenna. She was a lot of fun to talk to. We talked for a long time, so I had to cut out some of our segments of our conversations and some laughter, but um, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jenna. Yeah, so your your podcast is actually really interesting. I've enjoyed reading or listening through um, a handful of them. I haven't gotten through all of them yet, um, but I've also just been on a podcast binge now that I have nothing better to do than sit alone in my apartment with two cats. Um, so, and I just gravitate towards like the sciences more and like facts. Like I don't like getting caught up in all that the politics and stuff, it just gets really mm -hmm. exhausting. Um, so, and also just hearing about other people's stories. At my work, and this is sort of, I guess, uh, a happy coincidence in a way that you're asking what um, my story is because at our, our uh, department, so I work for the Nevada Department of Wildlife. Um, we recently had a meeting that was department-wide um, where we talked about what is our why. So, you know, we employ all sorts of different positions, like from administrative to like field biologists, um, more, we have IT, um, fiscal, and, you know, we could do these jobs for anyone, um, private industry, other uh, departments uh, within the state. So, you know, why why wildlife? Like, why is that where we choose to to be employed and what our story is leading up to getting all of these jobs? And it was really interesting listening to everyone tell their why, because there was a lot, obviously a lot of common threads. Um, but also you kind of got a better understanding, I guess, of, I don't know, passion is necessarily the right word, but sort of just like, again, what drives you? Like, mm -hmm. what makes you glad to go to work and not just sit and stare at your computer and hate life? Um, so, but it did get me thinking because I was like, well, what's my why? What's my story? Like, if I had to tell my story, what would it be? And I had really no idea. And actually the idea of it really stressed me out. And when everyone else was sharing, I was sitting in the back of the room, like a ball of anxiety, like, please don't pick on me because I hate public speaking. Um, but, you know, I was talking to my boss afterwards about just different ways that we can encourage within our own division, um, more unity and openness and, all, you know, vulnerability. Um, and she, and I was like, well, what about like sharing our whys? Like, and she's like, great, get ready. Like, we'll record you and we'll post it. And I was like, no, that's not what I meant. I don't want to do that. <laughs> and she's like, you can't be asking people to be vulnerable and not, you know, be vulnerable yourself. You have to start the conversation. And I was like, oh man, what did I get myself into? But um, yeah, so here we are though. <laughs> yeah. 
I'm not sure I count this as public speaking. It's just <laughs> well, <laughs> someone is going to have to listen to this. and <laughs> Yeah, but you won't have to sit there and like watch. That is true. Um, yeah, the, the standing up and the watching and everything is also a pretty big factor on that. But so I don't know where to begin. So when you were pondering your why, what was the first thing that came up? Yeah, what, what was like your brain path, I guess? <laughs> I mentioned that there were a lot of common threads and being in the industry that I'm in. So I work for, like I said, the Nevada Department of Wildlife. So basically our agency, we're a state agency and we're tasked with protecting 895, I think it's five, don't quote me on that, um, species like Nevadan species um, and habitat. So, you know, basically make sure that their habitat is healthy and can sustain healthy populations of all of these animals that we love to see out in the wild. Um, and a lot of the common thread was that everyone grew up going outside. They grew up hunting, they grew up hiking, they just liked being outdoors, they were running around and fishing and I was like wow I did not grow up doing any of that. <laughs> um, my, I grew up in a suburb of upstate New York and all of the outdoor space, I, the best way to describe it would be like, I don't know if this is the right word, but like manufactured in a way. So developments with green lawns and trees, but they were planted there. They weren't there for hundreds of years or anything. Um, I had proximity to the Adirondack Mountains. They were about two hours north of me, um, but my parents were just your average working class folk, um, but not, I wouldn't say hiking was necessarily something that they really loved. Um, they liked traveling. I traveled a lot um, when I was little, like to I think when I was seven or eight, I asked, my, my father asked me where I wanted to go on vacation. And I said Disneyland and we went to Vietnam for a month and I was like this is not Disneyland and he was like I thought you said Vietnam and I was like <laughs> nope <laughs> um yeah no not I thought I was gonna meet Mickey Mouse and I ended up in the back of a van driving through rural Vietnam for a month which in retrospect was amazing and way better than like any Disney whatever, sorry, Disney fans. Um, <laughs> but like, again, not really your standard vacation. Um, my parents were big on experiences, but as outdoorsy as they were on those excursions and they had been to like Africa and all over Asia and Southeast Asia and, um, you know, done the, the gorillas in the jungle, like the silverbacks and, you know, gone on safaris and stayed in hotels in these, you know, trees where you could watch the big cats like come down at night and feed and stuff. And, but then at home they were like pretty indoors. <laughs> um, and all my extracurriculars that I did growing up, um, I mean, if you were to bottle like only child privilege in a childhood that was pretty much what I experienced and I'm extremely fortunate to have had all the opportunities that I had um, but I was a competitive figure skater I played violin you know I horseback I did horseback riding for a stretch gymnastics for a stretch but like 
dance, everything though was very indoors, controlled environment, like mm -hmm. none of this like rolling around outside in the dirt or like, you know, picking up bugs and stuff. Like I sweat, this is like probably an overshare, but I am a very <laughs> sweaty person. And so like my time in the South was particularly heinous because it was like the worst living conditions that you could possibly put me in. But so going outside was like not a super pleasant experience for me. I was like, I'm hot all the time, even when it's not really hot out. And, you know, like now I'm dirty and I don't understand this. So um, I do remember this one experience <laughs> with my parents. My dad has this proclivity for getting these harebrained ideas and just going with it. And he was reading the newspaper and he saw that there was this mountain that had a really easy hike and you could just hike to the top and had a nice view. And he was like, let's go on a family hike. And I don't even remember how old I was. I was probably maybe in middle school. And so we packed up, went on this and it was not, this isn't like hiking, like you see on social media now where like people are like, you know, roughing it and rock climbing and like all this stuff. This was like a paved forest service road, like going like switchbacking up a mountain. <laughs> and it was in retrospect, probably a very easy hike, but my parents were not in shape at the time and about died. We did make it to the top, but they, like my father, once we got there, it was like, this was fun. We're never doing this again. <laughs> <laughs> so um after that my um I didn't really get even an interest or a strong interest in the outdoors until I hit college um and even that was not I guess that straightforward because um so I guess circling back and that wasn't a super uh fluid thought but I felt it was interesting how like I could be sitting in a room feeling a lot of the same uh, like passion and drive and and love for my job as these people who had such a different experience growing up like again didn't grow up in like a farm or like rural anything like everything was paved we had so many chain restaurants in my town growing up like you could literally sit in one of the dunkin donuts and look across the street at the other dunkin donut and like i mean suburb to the max um so it was just interesting and yeah i didn't hit it wasn't until i hit college and so for for college that was another interesting thing i kind of took a weird route um, i ended up going to mcgill university which is up in montreal and um, I started out though in engineering because I was like, again, pretty typical like student in high school, like straight A's, all these extracurriculars, like honor society, whatever. And so naturally it was like, what's the hardest thing I can do in my next step? Oh, let's be an engineer because you're a woman and you should do that. Um, so I entered the program and I, I hated it. Oh my God, I hated it so much. Like thermodynamics is, is still the bait of my existence. It does not make any sense to me. I don't care that it doesn't make any sense to me. And I thought chemical, and I picked chemical engineering of all of them. Um, so not even like the hands-on really fun stuff, like the just, you know, here's a process that goes from start to finish, like keep it from blowing up. And it, it's like very, 
it's like both boring and stressful somehow. Yeah, um, that's not a good combination. <laughs> yeah. So, and then again, I was, and I also wanted to go to school in a, in a city because I was like, oh, I'm, a su I'm in a suburb. I need to experience city life. And so like the more concrete jungle, the better. Um, and yeah, so I, I not only got into engineering and hated it, but I was not doing very well in it, which was a little bit of a blow to the ego at the time, um, having, you know, gone from basically being a straight A student without much effort to like, I mean, really struggling to pass my classes. Um, and I was just sort of floundering and I felt this really strong lack of direction. Um, like I thought about going back towards music because I had really enjoyed playing violin for many, many years. Um, but everything just sort of seemed like, like a dead end in a way. Um, so I hit my, I think this is my second year of college and I was still in engineering and I was trying to transfer out of but I needed to figure out what I was going to transfer into. And so one of the requirements for engineering is this impact of environment class. Um, basically, I think the point is to make sure that you knew that the environment existed. So when you built stuff as an engineer, you didn't just like wipe everything out. They're like, no, you should care about some of the things you're gonna like smush with your giant buildings or whatever. Um, so, and I picked this class that was, and I don't remember the exact name, but I think it was something like Earth's Changing Surface. So it was like a really high level, like landscape level, um, like geomorphology class kind of um and i loved it i like it was the first a i got in undergrad um i read the textbook like front to back in like weeks um and i was like oh my god i totally want to be a geographer this is amazing and so i switched i just made the jump um and because of my science background with engineering, because I had to take a ton of math classes and stuff like that, they were like, well, it'd be a shame if you like let that go. Um, so, you know, there's GIS, like you could do a concentration in GIS um, within the geography department. <clears throat> so that's sort of how I ended up there is basically I was failing out of engineering and then was like, oh, here's, here's this like, uh, what do they call those classes? Bird courses or something like, you know, something super easy. And I was like, oh, this is fun. Um, and yeah, that's how I ended up in GIS. Um, so I did a concentration in GIS and remote sensing and um, my secondary focus was physical geography. So that's where I got or I started to get my field experience. And so, mind you, I like did not grow up hiking or anything. So like I signed up for a field class, um, which was pretty generic. It was just sort of like physical geography 101 kind of thing, um, where we had to spend a week up in a mountain camping and like doing various things like looking at striations from glaciers and setting up like micro um, where are those hobo meters to look at like those micro settings in the environment and anything else that you could think that would be sort of like uh, abiotics not quite the right word because we did look at a lot of plants but 
not the animals. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> um, and I showed up for the course and I had, I did not know anyone. And I also apparently didn't get the memo to bring a sleeping bag. So I was not prepared. I had no pillows or sleeping bag. <laughs> and I was like, all right, let's do this. And everyone was like, what, who is this like weird person who like shows up for a field course and like doesn't have anything she needs. And yeah, so thankfully we stayed in like a, it was like a field house. So like it wasn't like full on camping. Um, but two of my friends who are, they're still two of my closest friends, um, who were also on that course, they saved me and covered me in blankets and other <laughs> random things to try to keep me warm at night, um, which I was, I'm still grateful for. <laughs> um, but yeah, that also just really ignited my interest in field work. Um, and after that, I took, I did a class in wetland science, which was really interesting. Um, bogs are really big up in Canada. So we visited all of these bogs with all this sphagnum moss, which I thought was like pretty much the coolest thing ever. Um, cool. <laughs> and like, you know, the pitcher plants and just, I don't know, it was like this most, it was like one of the most vibrant ecosystems I think I've ever seen. It was pretty amazing. Um, yeah, and so after, like, once undergrad was sort of winding down, I was really, really motivated, having just found, like, this area of interest that I really loved, and, you know, I was also finally excelling in school. I was like, all right, like, I'm ready. Like, I've, I've got to do more. Like, I want to go to grad school. Like, I want to do research, and at the time, remote sensing was super interesting to me. I thought satellite imagery was, like, the like cats meow or whatever. And, um, but I also still wanted to incorporate something to do with physical geography, if possible. Um, so I ended up at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana for grad with um, uh, a landscape ecology lab, um, which was in itself pretty interesting. That was probably my first exposure to ecology um, in the sense of like, again caring about like the living aspects of the landscape and not just like all the abiotic stuff um and my a lot of my colleagues were um very into vegetation so that's kind of where like I, I really like mushrooms it's like a weird side side note um mushrooms and trees <laughs> i'm terrible terrible at identifying either of them in terms of like species but like I mean, it's like, I'm like, ooh, look at this little weird thing that's growing, and yeah, so, um, yeah, and it, it was an interesting experience. Um, my project was looking at um, using satellite imagery and pairing it with historical um, in-situ data, so like just field data, <clears throat> but field data that had already been collected to see if we could trace or track or say anything about um, water quality characteristics um, kind of at a, a landscape scale. Um, so I was there for probably about four years. I will say my grad experience was not amazing. <laughs> um, I learned a lot and I learned a lot about myself. Um, 
and I don't regret going. Like, again, I made some amazing connections there. Um, and I, I, I did learn a lot. Um, I just didn't have a particularly strong relationship with my advisor. Um, mm -hmm. And then as that deteriorated, my experience kind of deteriorated. Um, so, which is a little bit unfortunate, but. It's okay. Um, I had a similar experience, so I understand. <laughs> yeah, it's. You know, academia is a funny thing, and this is sort of a caveat. It's, I, I went in kind of with that, um, I guess those, what's the term, like rose-colored glasses a little bit. Like, you know, everyone who's in academia just loves learning and research and teaching, and it's just like, they're just so passionate and blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, Illinois, so Illinois is a research one school, and it, you could tell it was a research one school, um, which I don't know if LSU is, but I, I wouldn't be surprised. I have never heard of that category, so I do not know. <laughs> um, so the pressure to publish is insanely high. And I, I just reached a point where I felt that it was getting a little bit ridiculous. Um, mm -hmm. And I also just didn't feel at least in from my perspective that uh the the teaching seemed very low on the priority list and that made me very sad like especially you know i was very fortunate to once i found you know geography and undergrad to have some very passionate professors and some very strong professors who taught me very well like i mean they had a very strong pedagogical theory and um i'm you know, if they had just been reading from a textbook, it, my experience would have been very different. Um, so to turn around and then go to grad school and then kind of get the other side of that was a little bit heartbreaking for me. Um, and also just, again, that high focus on publishing, but to what end and what cost, I sort of got a little bit disenchanted. Um, and this is not to discourage anyone from going to school because, and I actually listened recently to a podcast where a scientist was particularly like, we need to keep telling people to go to school, like, you know, and there's a whole financial side to grad programs and everything as well. But um, I mean, if you do find something you love and you just want to learn everything there is to know about it, then yeah. And I kind of look at school as like these tiers of learning. So there's like, you know, high school, you're just like, just get through it. I don't know. And then you hit undergrad and it's like, okay, so like now you're in the real world a little bit. Um, so again, though, here's a new situation and new settings and all this different information. So like, just get through it. Like just gotta survive. And okay, so grad school, like now we're gonna teach you to think a little bit outside the box and you're gonna take a little bit of a harder look at yourself. And also you're gonna to commit to this big task and you're gonna to have to push through and complete it, which is harder than it sounds. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. I remember like just sitting in my apartment and uh, like, I mean, for hours on end working on my thesis and I had like I looked like the Unabomber at that point because I had like very little furniture and just like papers all over like the floor and any table surface and like sticky notes and like I looked like a crazy person and I'm like no this all makes sense but like and yeah. man and you know you're like 
the the guilt you felt <laughs> like anytime I wasn't working on my thesis like I'd be like oh I'll go out and have a drink for happy hour or something and I'm like man I really I gotta get home so I can do a couple more things and like carrying your notebook around with you in case you had an idea and you had to jot it down because I mean my short-term memory is horrible so like I was like yeah if I don't write it down it's gone <laughs> Um, yeah, you just described me in grad school with paper everywhere, yeah. <laughs> everywhere, like all the guilt. Absolutely. That was me in grad school as well. I'm so glad that this is not just, it's, not just, it's not just you. Uh, I think maybe people don't talk about it enough because we're certainly not the only ones. I know. I, yeah, I, I have, I could, I could talk a whole, I could talk for a whole hour about grad school and my whole theory on that. But, um, but yeah, so Again, this isn't me saying don't go to grad school because you will learn stuff and it'll be yeah. fun. Um, but I think you know. it's just important that if it's like your goal and it fits with what you want to do, go. If it doesn't, then don't force yourself to. Yeah. Like just, definitely not worth just going to get a piece of paper. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I'm, again, at the end of the day, uh, it, it was, it was, both good and bad. Um, but I did learn a lot. And, you know, I try to approach life like, you know, you're sometimes stuff's just gonna suck. Um, but even if it sucks, you, you still come out a little stronger. <laughs> and you learn a little bit more about yourself. Um, but yeah, with becoming a more more disenchanted with academia, I wanted to shift focuses. And then I was very into everything being applied. Um, Side note, it also didn't help that uh, my thesis wasn't the best. I actually didn't end up publishing. I didn't and, either. <laughs> yeah, so I, 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 was not a, I was not a very high value grad student at that university. Um, but it didn't help right when I was, I had just defended and I was working on final drafts and NASA came out with an abstract that basically was my thesis except they had NASA's resources that I was like, well, there's no point literally in me doing yeah. anything with this. <laughs> um, but, oh, well, it happens. Yeah, it does. <laughs> um, yeah, so then I, I actually struggled a lot to get a job, um, which that's the other thing. I feel like they tell people like, oh, or at least they told, um, I don't, I don't know how old you are, but I'm 32. I'll be 33 this year. Um, so, yeah, when, I'm only a couple years older than you. <laughs> so we're probably in a somewhat similar boat in that when we were in school, they were like, yeah, like you need to get that master's to get that job. And so I was like, okay, well, at least even though I'm not going to stay in academia and that was a little bit painful, I can get a job. Like I can get a better job now. Nope. <laughs> um, I TA'd for a GIS lab in, uh, when I was at, uh, in grad school. And, um, so I had some teaching experience and I was still, I was still actually really passionate about GIS and that's where a lot of that grew is from interacting with students. Um, I thought that GIS and I guess I should stop using acronyms. So GIS is G geographic information science or systems, just depending on what you're talking about. Um, so basically it's my, 
I'm trying to use an analogy when I try to explain it. So it's like if you have, if you look at any data set and you're like, so, well, now that we're in a pandemic, let's yeah. take COVID <laughs> virus. So what if someone told you there have been 500 cases of COVID found today? And you're like, oh my God, like, and it's like, okay, but now there's 500 cases of COVID in New York. Oh, well, I'm out in Nevada. That doesn't impact me. Um, so it, it's like, I call GIS unofficially, like uh, space, it's helps you with spatially, spatially enabled decision-making. <laughs> um, and this is true for, it could be applicable for business or epidemiology with like this pandemic or natural resources and wildlife management. Um, I mean, really any data that has any sort of location, be it in time or space, mm -hmm. it's GIS essentially. Um, mm -hmm. And it's crazy because GIS, I feel like gets sort of a very narrow reputation of just being a mapping thing. like oh, you just make maps, you're a cartographer. And I'm like, I mean, I would love to be a cartographer and just make really cool maps all the time. Um, but so it, much more. it is so much more. And especially now with the onset of big data, uh, I feel like it's it's growing still because now it's it's not just taking the data and analyzing it, it's managing it in a way that makes it accessible and uh, to the layman. So like, uh, and I can get into that later when I actually talk about what I do, but it's, yeah, it's kind of crazy. And I go to like these conferences and stuff uh, that Esri, which is like the, basically a, a mapping company that provides all the software that everyone uses, right? And it's, it's just crazy to me to see how people are using it and how the industry has changed since I started going to that conference, like maybe five, six years ago. Um, you know, before it was like, it was like cartography and tools and how do we analyze data and how do we get cool results and display them in a, in a visually appealing way. And now it's like, here's like, a whole tech workshop on R or Python programming or how to build native apps in like, you know, Android or Apple environments or Microsoft environments. And I mean, the depths to which it's, it can go, it's like kind of crazy. Um, so I just have always felt really passionate that GIS is just this invaluable tool. Like, even if you just are really good at making Google Maps, I'm like, that's <laughs> awesome. Like, <laughs> like, yeah, drop those pins or like the <laughs> Google Earth thing where now you can like overlay historical imagery and it's, it's like, I don't know, it just like blows my mind and I, I love every minute of it. <laughs> oh yeah, I love looking at any map I can find. Yeah, I actually, um, I started collecting maps, which is, kind of weird, I guess. And I actually have no clue where to put them. It's gotten to a point where like so, most of them are still like rolled up in like the poster tube, but like I'll see these cool maps. And especially if I go, if I live somewhere or I go and visit uh, like a cool place, like I went to Nantucket 
um, for like my cousin had some event thing there and I got all these really cool um, maps of the water around Nantucket like these nautical maps and I was like whoa I didn't even know this is a thing and I have no clue how to read it but it looks really cool <laughs> yeah, yeah <awesome. laughs> um, and then I visited Chicago a bunch when I was in grad school and on one trip I went and I got this like uh, it's like a it's a print, but it was at one point like a hand sketched map of Chicago, like back in the day, like oh, that's cool. you know, before they did terrible things to the river and all this stuff. But like, <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, and it's interesting because like, if you look at historical maps, it's like they're these snapshots in time a lot of, in a mm -hmm. lot of ways, because a lot of them were hand drawn, you know, we didn't have computers and all that fancy stuff. And then they were driven by politics. So like you look at, uh, wartime, like the maps would be like very, like all the information even included on them would be very uh, uh, relevant to whatever events were happening, like during, if it was like Civil War, Revolutionary War, um, or the ones in Europe are really interesting to see too, because the cities have changed and grown so much, but you can tell, you can tell how old the city is by looking at a map of it. Because uh -huh. if it does not have a grid, that, that thing is old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Looking at you, Baton Rouge. <laughs> yeah, exactly. New Orleans, too, which has a little grid, but only a small spot, like the French Quarter. Yep. And yeah. yeah, and then you can tell what has been an addition over mm -hmm. the years because they're like, wow, this looks fairly logical. And it's like, <laughs> oh, because it's like brand new. Uh, <laughs> they actually had a city planner at that point. Um, but yeah, it's, sorry, I just went on a huge tangent about how maps are really cool, but awesome. they are really cool. And yeah, I like, agree. <laughs> we're now left out of our office. I'm going to send you a picture of the map of my office. Yeah? Yeah, so the Mississippi River meandering. Oh, yeah. I, river meanders were, I took a course in grad school on fluvial geomorphology, and it was like the coolest thing yeah. ever. I think it's, I think I might have missed a calling here. <laughs> 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 yeah it's meanders were like an obsession <laughs> yeah yeah i'll send you that picture when i'm not locked out of my office anymore but you're right sorry <laughs> oh, no. it's any yeah i was like wow i forgot about those man i have a whole other subset of maps i'm gonna need to look for now <laughs> i got links for you <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, so I, I was just really, I really loved teaching and I really liked the idea that I could impart my experience, my knowledge of GIS and even just my kind of where I came from with it, like having not found it until later and then just seeing the value in it and looking at the job market as well, like it was not um, necessarily required, but I mean, it was definitely advantageous, I would say, for folks to have that skill coming out of um, school in ecology or wildlife or any of those types of programs, especially. Um, so I was like, okay, like, how can I keep doing this? And I wanted to also get a little bit away from, um, I guess, like theoretical work in a way and mm -hmm do like really get back to like my GIS roots, like the mapping and the data management and sort of the drier stuff in a way. Um, and then figure out how I can use those skills to help like other people do their jobs better. And that's 
maybe the best way that I can describe some of what drives me now is that I, I don't really think GIS is necessarily at the forefront of what of the field that I work in, but it's definitely an essential tool and it can be used to create all sorts of efficiencies with work. Um, you know, again, be it you take like a Excel sheet full of numbers and like make something visually appealing that makes sense and can be interpretable and, and shareable and, you know, and used for like meetings or public, uh, public awareness or anything. Um, or just, you know, again, the everyday, like collecting data um, with GIS expanding now into application development and mobile app apps, uh, especially, um, you know, we have a real opportunity to be able to utilize and marry all of this new tech with just these really basic concepts of like, where are you and what did you see um, to make it so you don't have to write it down on a piece of paper or your field notebook and then go back and spend hours typing it in or pay someone to type it in. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can just get it done there and have live tracking and all that other fun stuff. So that was really where my interest was. But I also still really wanted to do field work <laughs> and I miss being outside. So I applied for a variety of jobs, like kind of that technician level. Um, I mean, all over the country. I didn't really have the, um, well, my parents have always lived in upstate New York and they still live in upstate New York, but I had moved enough at that point and not really lived in upstate New York for mm -hmm. a while. And I didn't really have the luxury, I guess, of being overly picky with my location. Um, so I ended up at Ducks Unlimited um, with an internship and I was, really fortunate to get the internship because uh, DU is like a national nonprofit and they're, I mean, people apply of all, to all sorts of their positions, really even just to get a job with DU, yeah. uh, not even because they necessarily want to do that particular job, but um, it was kind of a combination of a couple things, but one was just luck. Um, they were looking for someone to do a specific project looking at water quality and why like some investors or investors is not the right word donors mm -hmm. um, who had given a lot of money to clean up of the upper Mississippi watershed were wanting to know basically where their dollars went so like are we actually seeing results down in the Gulf or even downstream mm -hmm. or is it like is this not where I need to be donating my money um, so with my water quality experience with my thesis, they were like, wow, you're a prime candidate. So I lucked out with that job, though. I will say it was frustrating to have gone to grad school and get out only to be able to get a job where I had the skill set when I got out of undergrad. <laughs> yes, it happened to me too. <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like that's a very common story <laughs> um, and it is what it is um, but it's again it's sort of just like huh did I need that piece of paper <laughs> it'll help later probably <laughs> yeah <laughs> so but um, so I was in Memphis at DU's headquarters um, 
for a little over a year and that was like my first big person job um and i made like no money <laughs> and i had like no benefits um and i worked a full like 40 hours a week um, but i learned a lot i was really fortunate to have a supervisor there who i still actually keep in contact with um he's incredibly smart he's like him and his wife were from china they both majored in geography they both got two master's degrees <laughs> just because um and he at the time when we were working together was in the process of going through certification completely on his own to be a microsoft product developer and i was like my, my i think my brain like exploded when i met him i was like what <laughs> um so i basically dealt with really basic GIS stuff. It was like, make these maps, like manage these data sets. Um, I got some experience working with servers and like Arc server and Oracle databases as well and SQL and cleaning up and writing queries. That was sort of my first uh, work related hands-on experience with programming. I had taken, this is gonna age me, a Fortran class back when I was still in engineering, which if you tell any computer science person that nowadays, they like literally laugh in your face. They're like, what, did you go to school in the dark ages? And I'm like, maybe, <laughs> I don't know. Um, so I had a concept of programming, but I actually didn't realize how valuable that skill was gonna be. Um, Cause that's so much of what dominates our job market nowadays, but um but yeah, so I was fortunate to get to hone that skill a bit and also just manage bigger data sets. Uh, DU's membership database was like over a million people. Um, and I, you know, Excel pretty much explodes at that point. So like you have to work in it um, with other, other programs. And yeah, so it was, I learned a ton. And I also got to work really closely with their um land department so they are a land trust organization which means they can buy and sell properties or administer really um the exchange for different properties for money and blah 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 um which in the conservation world basically means it'll help it get more public lands available for hunters um and i say hunters in that context because du is hunting group in a way. Um, I know they market themselves as uh, wetland conservation and waterfowl organization, but I mean their constituents are mainly duck hunters um, or waterfowl hunters. So, um, you know, and the more public land, the more public access, the more people are able to get outside and, and recreate in that way. So um, that was also pretty interesting and a totally different facet. I never realized, one, how picky landowners are when it comes to their property boundary. Uh, we made these just uh, maps for major donors um, as like a gesture, like a nice gesture that they could hang in their hunting lodges or whatever. And I had guys literally come into the office and say, um, yeah, my property line, it's on the right side of that tree and you have it on the left side of that tree. So I'm gonna need you to move that. And I was like, what? <laughs> So yeah, that was, that was interesting. Um, and also just kind of also learning how conservation easements worked, which I probably still don't have a very solid <laughs> grasp on that. It's so complicated, um, but 
you know, the idea that like DU could get a donation of a land, it would be split up, we'd hold some, we'd sell some, we'd turn some into an easement. Um, but, you know, again, the goal was to not really be holding a lot. It was to try to get the lands into the hands of either like state agencies or uh, private NGO, other private NGOs who could either manage it or um, just make it open for public access. Um, so that was pretty cool. Um, that was also my first experience working for a hunting related organization, which as you can see, I am not that demographic. <laughs> uh, and also growing up in New York, uh, guns were like not a thing. <laughs> um, like I think I lived close enough to school grounds actually that I don't know that I could, anyone in my family could have owned a gun, <laughs> like legally. Um, and so yeah, then I got thrown into like the Mid-South and they're like, hey, let's, let's all have guns. And I was like, what? <laughs> Um, so that was also kind of interesting. Um, and that's also where I learned though, kind of the funding mechanism for so much conservation work. Um, mm -hmm. I never realized that hunting like before, just because I had very little exposure to hunting, I didn't realize just how much money, like what was it? I think at the time it was like 60% of any funds for conservation come from hunting and fishing licensing of some mm -hmm. kind so yeah and like taxes on ammo and gun purchases and stuff like that yeah yep. so that was a little bit eye-opening and I kind of was you know again being in academia you're in a you're able to be in a little bit of a bubble where you're like I love all animals like <laughs> let's not kill anything and then you know you go and work for a group that's like very pro hunting, but then you kind of also understand like there's the balance of that. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so I don't know. DU is still very corporate though. So I really didn't get any field fun time, which is sad. Um, and also most of the land in that area was private. So I also did not get the opportunity to go hunting because I could not afford on my intern salary to be um, joining any clubs or of any kind. Um, yeah. But I did learn a lot and that was my also first experience having my supervisor leave in the middle of my stretch there. <laughs> so he, as I mentioned, was very smart and trying to strive for bigger and better things. So he got a better job um, about halfway through. And then I was pretty much, I, I did his job, but didn't really, it was like in an unofficial sense because it took them a long time to fill his position. And so I got, really experienced really quickly basically running the GIS shop for headquarters of a national nonprofit, um, which was very stressful, but also kind of a blessing in disguise because it really gave me a, a ton of experience um, and also gave me the confidence to know that like I could totally do that. Um, and so then that was sort of my next like career path goal. It was like, I want to run the GIS shop for like a national nonprofit in conservation. And as my time at DU was sort of winding down, um, I was, I had been dating someone at the time and he got into grad school at Clemson University in South Carolina. And so I was like, as he was trying to make the move out there, I was also trying to move. And so I ended up with another internship at the time with 
the National Wild Turkey Federation, NWTF. Um, so kind of a similar organization to DU, um, a little bit more focused. Like wetlands and waterfowl are like everywhere. Turkeys <laughs> yeah, are, they are. Turkeys are everywhere, but like then they kind of trickle out west. Mm -hmm. um, and also just they're a completely different species. They're not migratory, like they're pretty localized, like mm -hmm. I, yeah. And um, so, but again, I came out of DU with a high level of confidence that I could like totally kick ass at this whole GIS thing and national nonprofit. So I was like, yeah, I got this. Um, and eventually I was um, promoted to an analyst, um, but it was around the same time that my supervisor there decided to leave for a better job. So if anyone out there wants to hire me at any point and they're looking for a promotion, <laughs> I'm your girl. I am your good luck charm because you will get that job. <laughs> That's funny. Um, yeah, so he, once he left, um, I ended up kind of in a similar boat. I was like, okay, I guess I have to run this whole thing now. Um, and turkeys were totally different, but um, this was a definite turning point in my career, I think. So Tanner came on board, like, I think I was probably there for at least a year. And I, he, so I worked under the person at the time, uh, my old supervisor, Tom, who was over science and research. And he had started a, an effort to try to get, give upcoming students this opportunity to get experience with field work, um, in particular, like uh, working with um, GPS trackers and, you know, mapping the data as well. And Tanner had come on and was technically the GIS intern, but also was going to help with the fieldwork aspects. And so him and Tom were going out one day and Tom was like, hey, do you want to come? And I was like, sure. And it like, I don't know, it like, after that, like we sat in a deer blind watching for turkeys like every day for months and it like I don't know just the time with the two of them and and especially Tom and I do love Tanner this is not a slight against Tanner he's still my favorite intern ever um but Tom is this like he's older he's got the beard and he was like grew up hunting and fishing and total outdoors guy um his understanding because my my view of hunters to that point was somewhat narrow still like having again a, even with the brief uh experiences i got with field work in undergrad um I, it had been a stretch again since i had really been in a field setting and definitely not in a professional field setting because I was in, always in an office. Like that's sort of the downside to a lot of GIS work is like it tends to put you in front of a computer. Um, though I do, I am a strong believer that the best way to build tools for biologists is to go out in the field with the biologists and see firsthand what they go through because it it's super easy to 
look at a data sheet and oh yeah, I can make a table out of this and then we'll just load it into this thing and then you're done. And then not know that, oh, well, the order of the questions matters because I always call it out in this order or the selections need to be like really quick for me to choose because I have, you know, less than a minute to get half of this information down or it's usually, I'm usually in a boat when I do some of this or a <laughs> helicopter. And it's, you know, so many of these things can, um, can drive like the user experience um, when it comes to data collection. So like, you know, I didn't really have the ability to before, but like now that we were trying to look at building um, like a project database basically for um, the Turkey Federation, I was, I guess, feeling a lot stronger that I needed to get out and get some face time with these guys. So um, anyways, my view of hunters though was pretty narrow because DU, I was always in a corporate office. I never interacted with them. So it was just still my own, like if you picture stereotypical hunter, like full camo, like, you know, I don't know, like got a gun, a shotgun over their shoulder and like, they're <laughs> just gonna roll in at whatever time and they've got their buggy or their four wheeler. And yeah, it's like, I don't know, like, duck dynasty kind of thing right, or whatever <laughs> um but what i didn't really understand was i guess their connection to the land and tom solidified that in me in so many different ways um in like sit again sitting in the blind with him and listening to him talk about how these turkeys behave and how they're like Easterns are kind of spooky. They don't like walking under stuff. If you change anything, like we had to put out fake nets and cannons for like weeks because these stupid birds would be like, that looks weird and like not go near it. And I'm like, God, like really? And how their, their vision is super, super strong. Like if you, move too quick in the blind even they're gonna like uh -huh. see their heads pop up their heads change color depending on their mood um and which actually they turn red white and blue which is very both amusing to me and also i'm frustrated that the turkey is not the national bird <laughs> for the u.s because how much more patriotic could you possibly get than a bird whose head literally turns red white and blue <laughs> Like, I, I love, I mean, I love raptors and I love eagles, but like, come on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Eagles are uh, over glorified in my opinion. Not that they're not cool, but <laughs> um, turkeys are pretty cool. Yeah. And so we, we tracked them and also, well, in spending time, more time with Tom, like his understanding of like, um, yeah, they, his his connection to the land having grown up and he's from south carolina so like he's he knew everything there was to know about that area um he knew the best place to sit under a tree he knew the best time of day to go he knew the areas he could tell you like i i mean specifics like oh yeah there's that rock by so-and-so's property and you take a right and then you know head down that dirt path and uh, yeah, I like, I think that's probably the first time that I really appreciated that hunting was more than just like going out and taking an animal like it 
like these people are so connected to the land and that's a great reason as to why so many of their dollars go towards um towards supporting conservation efforts because they i mean they're benefiting but like also they they have a true connection to it um in a way that again i almost envied because i didn't it's not that I didn't have an appreciation for where I grew up, but like I didn't have that same connection to the land because I was never outside. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so that was, it was kind of eye-opening. And Tanner and I, gosh, we spent like six months <laughs> tracking birds. Um, the nests, we also were looking for nests um, to measure. We had this idea of measuring nest success and we had put GPSs on two turkeys, which that's a fun story because Tanner and I used to sit and to kill time we'd play chess and he'd always kick my ass um because he's <laughs> way smarter than me um but he we'd be waiting to flip the switch and so we had not had success launching a net and getting any birds for like uh like months and we weren't holding our breath but Tom had to go away for a trip and he was like, I mean, if you guys still want to go out though, like, you know, we still have a couple more days before we, we can't be uh, baiting anymore. And we were like, okay, like, what are the chances? We definitely got two birds. It was very <laughs> stressful. Like, it was just like, oh my God, I think it's going to happen. And then I'm like, oh my God, I think, yeah, like, okay, we're going to flip the switch. Okay. Oh my God, they're in the net. And then like Tanner, who's six, something like all leg he's like sprinting down i'm like just fumbling behind him. <laughs> like oh my gosh it was it was exhilarating terrifying <laughs> and like not i don't think either of us really were that like mentally prepared for it because i was just <laughs> like i don't know what to do and thankfully our uh one of our property managers was nearby at the time so like we were able to call him and get him to help us like get the birds out and stuff and yeah because it was just like it was like oh my god it was like uh when a animal or like a pet like actually catches the ball or something and it's like well now what do i do <laughs> um but i can say that we did successfully actually catch two turkeys and put gps's on them so that was pretty neat um and neither of them died which was also Good. Yeah, nice. <laughs> um, yeah, up until that point, my only experience with netting was with songbirds. Um, my yeah. ex, my now ex-boyfriend, he had done a red-headed woodpecker project when we were in Illinois. And um, so I helped him trap. And I actually didn't actually end up holding any birds on that outing. But um, yeah, songbirds are way less terrifying in a lot of ways than like... Yeah. I never really even thought about how big a turkey was <laughs> or like what the spurs were for. And I was like, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so that was really cool. And I still really love turkeys. Um, we found, we only found one nest after a lot of weeks of searching, um, which GPS triangulation, not as easy as it looks. <laughs> um, even when it's a stationary target. <laughs> We, well, when we did finally find one of the nests, it was like, I don't know, Tom actually took a picture of me and Tanner, and I think it might 
that is my totally my LinkedIn profile picture, though I cut Tanner out, not because <laughs> I don't love him, but because I was like, nope, this is just me. Um, and yeah, and Tom's caption under the photo was something like, Jenna, like, I don't think I've ever seen Jenna this happy. <laughs> and I was like, you have no idea how long we've looked for that stupid thing. <laughs> so yeah, that was a lot. It was really fun and kind of life-changing because I, again, I feel like it brought like a lot of different aspects to a lot of the work that I've been doing kind of together. Like, you know, I, I had a much higher appreciation for like hunters and the hunting community. I had a much also stronger appreciation for what it meant to feel connection to an area and to, to, to land and habitat. Um, and I, yeah, it, also like you know with the conservation funding i was like this is so this stuff is so important and it's it's beyond just like saving animals like yeah we all love critters and they're cool um but it's like even in reno now like my landscape is very different but like going outside and seeing all these mountains and it's mm -hmm. and knowing like i could drive 30 minutes in either direction and be in a really cool hiking spot or mm -hmm. like you know these really nice isolated woods and um that's like what we're trying to preserve it's like mm -hmm. the access and the existence even of these very special places um that do house some really amazing creatures um so yeah i as a result of all that field work i actually have a turkey tattoo <laughs> of turkey tracks and the scientific name for eastern wild turkeys which i actually don't think i told tanner about until much later <laughs> and him being kind of the grandfather of everyone is sort of like his somewhat disapproving but kind of also humored by all of it but um but yeah that was that time my time in South Carolina was very it was pretty life-changing in a lot of ways um and so I did end up leaving that job um there were just some changes that happened um again so being a nonprofit, like and having donors and donations being a main funding mechanism stuff was always a little bit stressful, I find, at those types of uh, jobs. And NWTF in particular was, and I don't know if this is still true, but just uh, their reach did not seem as far as like DU and some other groups. Um, so, and also they had just switched their mission from like, uh, I think restoring turkey populations to over, I don't remember what the number was, so many in every state to like the save the habitat save the hunt um and so there was just some administrative mm -hmm. changes that um prompted me to leave um i decided i just needed a change um so i applied to the job i have now completely kind of on a whim and actually i think tanner was the one who sent me the job posting um so i should thank him in a lot of ways uh and I was like, there's no way, there's no way I'm gonna get this job. Like it's, it is like about where I would wanna be cause I'd be managing like a team, um, but it's in a city that doesn't sound terrible and it's not in the middle of nowhere. And it's kind of near some cool resources like Tahoe. Like there's just no way, there's no way I would ever get this job. Um, 
and I was up against some stiff competition, I think. Um, some folks from like TNC and mm. other like, uh, I think also National Park Service. Um, but my, again, my experience kind of running the GIS shop at both DU and NWTF and also at NWTF having built and or at least designed this project database um, <laughs> using Google Sheets not ideal, not real thing. Do not suggest the formulas for that were terrible. Um, but uh, we were successful and we were able to track projects on a number of different levels. And that was a huge, it really just helps with our reporting at the end of the year um, and tracking our progress and also tracking the progress towards our goals for like conserved acres um as our mission statement um, which was it felt good to contribute to the mission statement in that directive away um, so that helped me get this job um, because they were looking for someone to try to help them transition from sort of scattered silos of data to something more enterprise level um, and so fortunately i got the job um, and i made the move to reno nevada and it is Nevada, not Nevada. Don't say Nevada. They'll crucify you out here. Um, and that's my East Coast side of me saying I learned my lesson when I moved out here. Um, and I had never actually been to Nevada until I moved here for the job, um, which kind of in a way speaks to what we do nowadays, I guess, for for the job, it's just, you pick up and move. Mm -hmm. um, and so far it's been great. Um, totally different resources, totally different also working for a state agency um, as opposed to like a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. um, a lot more red tape, that is true. That is a true thing. Um, I can't imagine what you deal with at the federal level, but <laughs> it's, it's like, it, kind of is frustrating, but I, at the same time, it's also, I thought, I thought it was going to be a little bit simpler because I was going from managing people and information in like 50 states, well, 48, <laughs> um, <laughs> to one, but it's way more complicated. Like, it's like taking a microscope and zooming in on the cell and then you're like, oh, it'll be easy, it's just one cell. And you're like, nope, not easy, <laughs> not easy at all. Um, so yeah, and that's where I'm at. So I'm the GIS data coordinator, technically, which is basically a fancy way of saying I'm, I'm the GIS manager. Um, I have a team of three um, normally. Right now we have a vacancy, but that's, to be determined with this whole mm -hmm. pandemic situation. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, and so we are housed in the Data and Technology Services Division, um, and we basically support all GIS or data needs for the department. So our focus is mainly on fulfilling data requests from external sources. Um, that's a very popular thing with states because we are a public entity and we cannot technically keep any of our data locked up but we do have some protections for like endangered or uh, at-risk species 
Um, but we, we pretty much funnel all of that. And then we also develop applications for field data collection. That's like a big thing right now. Um, so we really leverage mostly out of the box stuff. I'm hoping maybe next year I can start getting my guys some more training on building like actual native apps. Um, mm -hmm. Because a lot of the asks that we're getting now are just getting more and more either in the weeds or just like beyond the scope of what the box gives you. Mm -hmm. um, so, and we're getting, I think, savvy enough that we can try anyways to uh, meet those demands. Um, but our method that we're using now is like the agile scrum method, which is pretty standard with uh, most tech groups. I think these days, like a lot of development companies use it. Um, so we get the acceptance criteria gathered from the person asking for products and then we build whatever they need us to build. Um, and yeah, it's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty like uh, formula driven <laughs> and also pretty dry. Um, we were, we actually just transitioned. We used to be a little bit more of a Wild West group. Um, everyone's sort of working on their own stuff. And um, my boss is relatively new um, with her coming on and having a strong IT background, like pure IT. Um, she's helped us sort of become a lot more efficient in a lot of ways. But for me, sadly, it means less fun stuff and more just managing projects and people. Um, which is fine. I knew to a degree that taking this next step from sort of the analyst level to a managerial level was going to mean, you know, you give some things up to grow your sphere of influence. Um, so, and I am learning a lot. It's a totally different skill set than I ever thought I'd have to be working in. I thought like, if you asked me what I was going to be doing when I got out of school, I'd be like, I'm going to make maps for the rest of my life and it's going to be great. <laughs> and now it's like, I'm going to manage a process <laughs> um, and come up with tasks and to-do lists and make sure people meet deadlines and <laughs> gather criteria. Yeah, so it's, um, but it's been good though, in a way I'm, you know, I feel like so many people get into conservation because they don't want to deal with people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's like all you do <laughs> is like endless meetings and yeah. Unless yeah. you're a field person and then all you do is not see people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but eventually that gets old. That's where I'm at right now. It's getting a little old. Yeah, it's hard too, because the I mean that's the fun stuff for sure. Yeah, and it's I still, still fun, but. I mean I do still get out in the field. Um, we do all sorts of really cool projects out here, and it's uh, like bighorn sheep is the is huge. So we do a lot of bighorn sheep captures where we have like the helicopters and the crazy helicopter crews that jump out of the helicopters <laughs> on top of these animals like it's sheep and antelope and elk and deer and then they it's like a tackling thing and then they haul them off and drop them off at a base camp and then we process them and weigh them and do all these measurements and take blood samples and put collars on them and then they get re-released and it's a very dramatic process <laughs> um, <laughs> and very cool. I have so many cool pictures um, and 
you know, also being an upland desert is just a totally different environment. And in the north, we've got like um, just it's like kind of cold, and you know, you, you get like a very strong winter. And then as you head down south, you get these sand dunes and stuff. Mm-hmm. I've gotten to chase lizards and um, Gila monsters uh-huh. um, in the Vegas area which I was absolutely terrible at chasing Gila monsters. As I've aged, I've gotten some really bad fear of heights and they love to sit on the very, very top rocks in like the Red Rock Canyon area. Uh And so like I got halfway up and I was like, they're like, I think we're almost there. And I was like, I'm good. (laughs) Like I'm not gonna be able to get back down. (laughs) Yeah, I would be bad at that. That was a bit of a bummer. And pika are also critters. They're super cute, those little mammals, but they also really like high elevation, (laughs) like rocks. So um, unfortunately, a lot of those have eluded me, but the lizards was pretty cool. I'm very terrible at um, noosing lizards. I have like no agility for that, apparently. (laughs) Um, But we were looking for fringe toad lizards in uh, the some dunes outside Vegas. Uh, they were looking for these to see if they could test for genetics to look at, well, basically to know if populations of them on the different dunes were actually mingling or if they were actually isolated like groups with really specific genetic characteristics, which I mean, if you had asked me if that was a thing like a year ago, I'd have been like, that sounds made up. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's a thing. Um, so, and it's also a really good excuse to look at lizards, which they were really cool. Um, yeah, cool. And I also, I do raptor surveys every year. Um, we do driving surveys in this state, which is kind of neat. So you just pick, we have some routes um, that are standard and you sit in a car and you drive around and you look for birds. Yeah. <laughs> um, golden eagles, red-tailed hawks, ferruginous hawks, cooper's hawks, uh, rough-legged hawks, <laughs> harriers, all kestrels. Kestrels are like the coolest raptor I've ever seen. Yeah, they're they cool. look so mean. And I saw, we got a picture of one last year that was holding a sparrow like in its talon, like just chilling. <laughs> like, Doing important kestrel things. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and as someone who, I think you said you like birds, so mm-hmm. that's, yeah, the, uh, raptor surveys are one of my favorite things to do, um, partly because I really like the biologist who I get to ride with. <laughs> He's okay. super interesting and just is also someone who is super familiar with the area that he's managing, so, like, he knows the history of the Paiute tribe because we're right near tribal lands. He mm-hmm. can tell you the geologic history of the area and how we have chufa stacks near Pyramid Lake and they're made of this special rock and it like bubbles up and makes these weird rock formations and what the pyramids are in Pyramid Lake and how it's like, a, I mean, it like goes yeah. on and on. And like he also travels those routes enough that like he knows where birds sit Mm-hmm. So like we have specific spots where we always look for a bald eagle mm-hmm. and a golden eagle and like oh like I, I definitely saw like this cool thing or like I know there's a nest around here. <laughs> yeah yeah if you go somewhere frequently enough you start to like learn the local wildlife like there's yep. an area we go through um, and it's like a canal there's always great horned owls in these couple of trees. <laughs> 
Uh, it's the only place I've ever seen greyhorn owls except one time when I was in grad school. And I see them every time you go through there. That's awesome. Funny, yeah. I still haven't seen an owl in real, in like wildlife, <laughs> in the wild. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's a, that's a pretty cool effort. And it's statewide too. So we get all this data and we send it to a bird observatory to process and um, what's the other one? We do desert tortoise surveys, Western pond turtle surveys. We've got a huge Amargosa toad um, effort to like monitor that. It's, it like only lives in the specific valley of Nevada, which is kind of crazy to me. And spring snails are the new hot species in Nevada. They're the, I've been told they're going to be like the next enigmatic micro species. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, because they are literally microscopic and all of their scientific names, fun fact, are generally named to describe their genitalia. That's funny. So there's a ton of Johnson Longati <laughs> Springstail species. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> oh, people are funny. Yeah, that's like what happens when you spend your whole career studying spring snails <laughs> through a microscope. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, so if, to circle it back around, if you, you started sort of like your big why, uh, it sounds like to me um, that it's like land conservation and applying that like in a real world sense. Like that is the thing that you like if I had to pick like one big thing that it might be something along those lines that's so hard <laughs> I know I hear you uh but I say it that way because I feel like your why and my why are probably very similar but I haven't thought of how I would formulate mine yet because Ash just had a meeting yesterday where they're like what is your why and I was like well, I don't know <laughs> so I've been thinking about it since yesterday and now listening to you, I've been thinking about it some more, but I feel like they're probably similar if, if I'm not off target. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I think it's hard to bring it all, I guess, yeah, back yeah. full circle because there were, I feel like I went through a lot of phases in my career where like just different things were interesting mm -hmm. to me. And like, I mean, I do miss the field work part but it's definitely kind of the icing on the cake at this point like the yeah. cake is still just like the job I get to do every day yeah. um and now that I'm seeing what good like becoming a good manager can really mm -hmm. mean for not really even just um like my group in particular but I think for like conservation like and this is not a slight against anyone. I think there are many great managers out there, but often I'm finding that biologists will get promoted. We, what's the saying? It's like you're promoted to the highest point of incompetency or something. Um, and we, yeah, I've just, heard that. <laughs> so we just don't take the time to really say, oh, like now I'm not just a biologist. Like I'm also managing a group of biologists and it's easy for us to sort of 
I guess, backtrack and go just back towards what we know, which is all the stuff in the weeds. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I can go out and do that survey. Like, I know how to do that, or I know how to make that map, or I know how to process that data. And instead, we really need to be saying, well, I hired you to process the data, or I hired you to go survey the species, but like, I need to make sure that you have the resources available to you that you need and that you're able to get it done within a timely manner so that we meet like our overall all goals. Um, so I'm hoping like kind of with just sort of some more recent shifts in my, in my career in a way um, that I can impart like these new skills to getting, it's like efficiency at like a different level. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so now it's not just building the tools, it's like making sure that they meet criteria and a timeline. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, and also again, always though to further like technology in in the sense of GIS, in the sense of like even just the computers we use or the tablets or whatever is such a, it's like growing in importance in this field of like, it would be a biology, conservation, wildlife biology, whatever, like it's, we can't, we're, it's becoming more and more difficult for us to really do our jobs well um, and without the tools anyways. So like to, to be able to, I guess, contribute to that, like backbone of support um, in a way that is, felt or maybe even not really felt but just like you don't have to worry about it um i think is really is is still very valuable and that's Mm -hmm. you know i always wanted to help um or provide like a good service to folks Mm -hmm. and in coming out of school it was like oh i want to enable other people to be able to do that and i still do i'm like i love i wish i could teach still um and i'm still trying to figure out if I can become like a geo mentor or something like through Esri, but um, it's at least in the applied world and like the state agencies now that we're working with, not even just my people, but like the partners that we work with, like BLM is huge with us, Um, USGS, Forest Service, uh, all these private uh, consulting groups who are really the boots on the ground trying to get the work done we're just there to either provide access or funds or some means for them to actually do it, then it's, um, yeah, it's, it's like, okay, how can I help? Like, yeah. how can I help you do your job better and make sure that you can do your job? Yeah, yeah. And also like, I'm hoping with, I'm hoping as tech changes and we are forced to funnel more and more of our stuff into one managed system that we also just have a growing sense of like unity in a way i think it's really easy for at like a field level to feel kind of isolated like Mm -hmm. we have field bios in offices that are so remote that like they could easily go for like months without really seeing another employee even of our organization um and so it's pretty easy to get into this mindset of like, I'm on my own in an island. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, yeah. and now I, and then also maybe go like full Ted, not Ted Bundy, the Bundy family that like took over that like public area. But, you oh, know, yeah. just, Oregon. yeah, total like anarchy, like, mm-hmm. nope, no one touches this area. <laughs> this yeah. is my land. And you're like, okay. 
Um, and, but really, you know, conservation isn't going to work at an individual level, right? right? We can't manage everything and we can't do all of the things ourselves. So like, we've got to be able to let go of some stuff, but also really find the common unity in community in like the science community or the, you know, whatever community that you're in for conservation. So, um, yeah, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that's maybe an artifact of like all of it coming together. Yeah, I think that nobody, I've said this a few times, nobody does science in isolation. So you have to work together and especially, I'm sure some of these species cross state lines. So there's probably some cooperation because, you know, wildlife don't care where your state line is. I know. Isn't that just uh, nuts? <laughs> yeah, so cooperation is important on across all kinds of levels. Yeah. Again, I really like that idea of like people telling their story because yeah. I mean, even the handful of the podcast I listened to of yours, um, like prior to this, it was just really interesting to get, there's just so many different perspectives. Yeah, um, exactly. And like some were, I think, more predictable than others in a lot of ways. I've been reading a lot of like, I don't know if you're familiar with like Brene Brown. Oh my God, that's so timely. So let me back up real quick and I'll tell you I've heard of her. Uh, I'm doing this leadership program called Homeward Bound. Um, it's out of Australia. And anyway, so they all love her. So I only just heard about her a couple months ago, but I've watched one of her TED Talks. She's phenomenal. Oh my God. And she just started her own podcast. <laughs> right next down. I did not know that. And now I'm going to go listen to it. Yeah, it's also amazing and very timely because her first episode was last week at like the end of the week and she yeah. talks about now I'm gonna swear it's like everyone's first fucking time like FFTs <laughs> and she's like like now like what we're all in right now it's our first fucking time and it really sucks and no one knows what to do and we're feeling really overwhelmed and feeling all these other feelings and all we want to do is like hide but we are yeah. gonna get through it and I was like oh my god you're such a godsend <laughs> I know she's amazing uh I need, I need to read all of her books. I don't know how many of yeah. there's at least two. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, my supervisor gave me like three of them, I think, mm -hmm. at least. But, um, and yeah, I had just done a, like the Stephen Covey, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I have that on my Kindle, but I haven't read it yet. <laughs> I, I highly recommend it. I did sort of a course, like a three, four week. It was multiple weeks, but like one day. Um, sort of like condensing the book um, into like classroom learning, but now I'm in the process of reading the book and it pairs super well with a lot of Brene, what Brene talks about because she's uh -huh. more of like, you know, like the vulnerability and shame and like kind of dealing with like that mm -hmm. inner, um, what was it called? It's like the personal victory aspects that you need to master. Um, so like as I'm going through the Covey book, I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> And I think like with, when it comes to sharing your story, it is vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of times, like I know I felt really intimidated, like listening to all my colleagues tell their stories and they were all so similar. And I was like, I'm such a weirdo. Like <laughs> I, you know, again, no outdoor growing up. No, like did not take that traditional path. I've never hunted in my life. I've like... <laughs> But again, we're all there. We're all still in the same place. And I think yeah. there's 
something really to be said about that. And mm -hmm. especially as like conservation, like struggles with the hunting community being on a decline and all these R3 movements and things. Um, mm -hmm. Like it's like definitely something that I think everyone's trying to unpack. Mm -hmm. um, like, you know, well, what are your drivers? Like, why are you here? Like, why are you working for a hunting organization if you've never hunted? Like, why do you care? Yeah. And, you know, the the whys can range. And I think that that diversity is really what's going to save conservation in the end, because if we all work as clones of each other, right? Like, it's, it, like, it would just take that whole thing, like, just that whole group just, like, dying, and then we'd be like, okay, that's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If everybody was the same, that would be boring anyway. Yeah, and everybody's path is different, although even though you said like a lot of people are similar, um, their why might be different. So even though they're in the same place as well. Yeah. Uh, anyways, well, yeah, it was really great talking to you though. Um, yeah, you too. I uh, appreciate you doing this. No, no problem. I hope you enjoyed hearing uh, today's storyteller. And if you want to find out more, I share a bunch of information and resources from every storyteller over on the podcast Facebook page. So go find us and like us. It's called Storytellers of STEM on Facebook. You can also find the same information and stuff on my Twitter at Flying Cypress, F-L-Y-I-N-G-C-Y-P-R-E-S-S on Twitter. I'll share all kinds of information and resources from each storyteller over there. Um, and if you would like to be on the podcast, I'm always looking for STEM storytellers. So if you have a story you'd like to share, uh, message me on Facebook or Twitter or check out my website, rachelvillani.com slash podcast. And there's a submission form and it will send info to me and then I will get in touch. So if you want to be on the podcast, hit me up. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.